Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, in them to Genesis 16. And you did hear me, right? Genesis 16. Um, we're going to go back in time a little bit today. Over the course of the past several weeks, I've been struggling with the fact that I overlooked Hagar a bit. And it's somewhat ironically, because the whole point of that passage as I breezed by it was that God was not overlooking Hagar, and I just kind of breezed past her myself, uh, because I was talking about Ishmael in Genesis 16, and then I was talking about the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16, and I kept saying, remember that there's a good message here about Hagar, but we're not going to spend time on it, but it wouldn't let me go. Um, I haven't been able to shake the feeling that I missed something that I needed not to miss. So I'm going to go back to Genesis 16 today. The next week, we'll jump back into Genesis 18, and we'll continue along our trail of Genesis, uh, thinking through the things of these early days of the Lord's created work. Um, if you recall, back in Genesis 16, if you're there, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says this, I'll read to verse 13. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand, do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, that would be Hagar, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child and shalt bear a son and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction, and he will be a wild man, and his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? So Hagar fled from Sarai. I thought I was done with those pre-covenant names, but here we are again. And he ends up at the well, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago. And we spoke in part about the beauty of that narrative. We're not surprised that God saw Adam and Eve and walked with them in the cool of the day. They were the crown of his creation. They were the first of his creation. God would come and walk with them. This is not something that is intrinsically surprising. We're not surprised that Enoch walked with God. Enoch was the great pre-flood prophet, the one that is quoted in the New Testament, the one uh, who we recognize to be that, 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 that first of the truly prophetic line. We see other prophecies within that, that narrative, but the first of the, of the truly great uh, prophets of old. So that God would see Enoch, it's not a surprise. Noah was a righteous man in an unrighteous time that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, that the Lord saw him in the day of judgment, does not surprise us. Abram was a devout man, one through whom the seed of Christ would come, a man of obedience, a man who was the friend of God, a man who, who sat with the Lord. We'll come to that here in a little bit. It is not surprising that God would see him because God had a plan for him. But, but then there's this woman, Hagar, this handmaid of Sarai. This woman, pregnant with a child who would, as we talked about several weeks ago, actually become a thorn in the side of God's chosen people for millennia unto this very day. What an interesting thing. What a wonderful insight that God saw her too. 
And let's talk for a moment about what it means that God saw her. One of the commonalities of the human existence is a measure of disillusionment with life, a disillusionment with being or with existence. We live in a very big world, and, and we, we recognize that world to be very, very large today. And in a sense, we say with technology and with travel that the world has gotten quite a bit smaller. But, but in another sense, it's, it, it's actually gotten quite a bit bigger because uh, go back 150, 200, 300 years ago, and then well before that, uh, the number of people that actually traveled outside of their small area of the world was actually relatively small. Uh, there were not that many people that had access to the broader aspects of the world. And then as transportation became more of a thing, and then now we have digital uh, communication, um, yes, the world got smaller and that we became more connected to it, but the access to the world became much greater so that um, we can travel the world. And many, many people here have traveled uh, to portions of the world well beyond that which anyone outside of kings or merchants would have ever done in times past. But as you see the largeness of the world and the vastness of its knowledge, uh, even with the access to the vastness of that knowledge in our pockets today through the internet, uh, it, it is uh, in part at least a humbling experience to recognize just how much exists and how small of a part we are in such a large machine. You and I are a very small part of a very big system. If we're blessed and we live something like 80 years within that time, we'll spend most of our lives simply living. Now, we're not in a subsistence culture, as many cultures in the past, and indeed many cultures today still are. We do not spend all of our time, like many in the world today and like most in the world throughout history, just surviving. Uh, you wake up in the morning and you go do the things you do in order that you might eat that day and then at the end of the day, you have what you have and you've sufficient unto the day and tomorrow you're going to get up and you're going to do the same thing in order to live that day. We don't live in a subsistence living culture now. Instead, we, we live in a, a culture of absolute abundance. And with that abundance is not just an abundance of material possessions. Even those uh, that, that are poor among us, relatively speaking, are, are, are wealthy as it, within relation to the vast majority of the world or the vast majority of history. And one of the things that our abundance gives us is not just an abundance of resources, but it gives us an abundance of time. Even those of you who don't feel like you have a lot of free time actually do have, relatively speaking, an abundance of time at the very least in this regard, that if you gave yourself time to do something else on any given day than labor, you would not go without the necessities of that day. What I mean by that is, if you were to not labor today, you would not starve today. That means you actually have time at your disposal. But for those 80 years or so that we are blessed to live, we make a mark upon this world. You touch the lives of a few, you uh, interact with some, you build some things, whatever it might be. And the vast majority of us, we will make a mark upon this world, but it will be a fairly small mark, relatively speaking. For the vast majority of us, they will not speak of us in history books. Our names will perhaps be remembered by those who loved us and knew us but probably not by those who loved those who loved us and knew us, and certainly not by those who loved those who loved those who loved us and knew us. And our name will soon pass out of history. 
And even among the great and the mighty, this can bring a measure of disillusionment. Even among the strong, this can bring a measure of disillusionment. It can bring this idea of, do, is there any relevance? Is there any usefulness? Is there any purpose? If I'm just here and I'm going to live and then I'm going to go and I'm going to die, then what, what is the value? Now, in the Christian world, of course, we have mitigated this and that's where we're going with this, right? A God that sees you. But from a purely human perspective, that can be very disorienting. It can bring disillusionment. And it's not just among the small, those people that pass out of the history books. It is also among the great. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible dedicated to the contemplation of this disillusionment. The book of Ecclesiastes. A book written by the great King Solomon, one who is still in the history books, one who we read about regularly. One of the wealthiest and most powerful men who ever walked the earth a man of wisdom that is unparalleled in history, given to him by God, a man who did great wonders. And yet consider how he described his own existence. And I'm going to do a good bit of reading here in Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, so, so uh, bear with me. Consider how he described his own existence beginning in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the Son of Man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity, emptiness, vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had... I had great experience of wisdom and in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all, that were, uh, all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, for what can man do that cometh after the king? What can the man do that cometh after the king? even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which, is, which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Therefore, I hated life. I'm on the wrong thing here, aren't I? No, I was there. I'm sorry. Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. 
And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labor therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and of his vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. So Solomon was a man that had everything that the world could possibly offer him. Unless we elevate ourselves and say, well, sure, but he didn't have what we have today, right? He didn't have the transportation and the technology and, and, and the cars and the planes and whatever else. Okay, you're right. He didn't have high fidelity music that he could access across the internet at any time, day or night. He simply imported the orchestra, right? And he had it in his courts day and night. He didn't have the ability to travel the world. He just created a paradise where the world traveled to him. The Queen of Sheba comes and she could not even speak. She was out of breath at what she saw when she traveled to his kingdom. So let's not fall into the trap of believing we are in a uniquely amazing time uh, as it relates to some of these things. A time that is able to uniquely satisfy in a way that ancient cultures could not. Um, that's a bit of hubris there that we, we dare not fall into. So Solomon contemplates all of the greatness of his kingdom. And he called it sorrow and vanity and grief. He sought for wisdom and knowledge and he found in it frustration. For when a man gains wisdom and knowledge, the thing that impresses upon him the most is not what he has learned, but, by, but, but, but simply how much he does not know. He built all of these wonders and he said, it's, all, it's wonderful all of the things that I built, but then he was deeply troubled by the fact that he was going to give it to some other man who was going to ruin it all, right? He says, I'm a wise man, but I'm going to build all this stuff and then I'm going to hand it down to someone and who's to say he's going to be a wise man? And eventually it's going to fall to some fool and he's going to ruin it all. And so then what good is it? How does the wise man die? He dies the same way a fool dies, right? Yeah, the Egyptians buried him with a bunch of gold because they hoped that he could take it with him, but that gold is still there for us to find today. So the wise man dies as the fool. The wealthy man dies as the poor man. And so then Solomon says, what's the point? In all of this labor under the sun, Solomon sought unto all sorts of things to see what could satisfy. He sought unto the, the, the wisdom. He sought unto money. He sought unto laughter. He sought unto celebration. Within the Ecclesiastes, it says he sought unto alcohol and to debauchery. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. He sought to build those great works and those houses and those vineyards. He sought unto the, 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 not just money, but all the treasures of the world, and he sought to gain them. He sought unto the music. He sought unto the arts. He kept himself from nothing that his heart desired. And then Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11 says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all of it was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Now, I've preached through Ecclesiastes. It was quite a while ago, but those of you that recall and those of you that don't, you can listen online. I'm pretty sure I wasn't on YouTube at that point, but you can listen on the, the website and the archive page. And the focal point of Ecclesiastes is that phrase, under the sun. 
because there's a contrast between that which is under the sun, meaning the things of this life, and then that which is before the Lord. And that's the contrast that, that, again, we're getting to this morning. But under the sun, as it related to the simple and actual life being lived stuff, Solomon said it's emptiness. And he became disillusioned. Disillusioned with life. Even his legacy, as we said, the mighty works which he has built, he realized quite quickly that when he died, they would be handed over to men less capable than himself and would take what he would build and he would ruin it. So that all of the greatness of Solomon, all that he, uh, we had, have had for the thousands of years after, try that again. Of the greatness of Solomon, what we have is some archaeological digs, right? That's what we have of the greatness of Solomon today. His works are gone. His legacy is gone. So Solomon asked in verses 22 and 23, What hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrow and his travails grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. So this disillusionment of which I speak is not a disillusionment that is unique to the impoverished. Like Hagar, a handmaid who really had had nothing in this world save to serve her, her master's wife a woman who was a servant of a great household whose name held no weight in the world, who had no power, who had no influence. But this disillusionment falls upon the strong as well as the weak, upon the great as well as the small. And this disillusionment is, in, in in a very real way, a natural part of human existence. It is a natural thing to come to some measure of frustration as it relates to where you are, your place in the world, who you are, and such. As a matter of fact, nearly every young person, as you transition from childhood to adulthood, is going to feel some of this, right? We talk about it in those, uh, what, are, what are termed today teenage years, where a young person is transitioning to adulthood, and their mind is changing, and their body is changing, and they're gaining responsibilities, and they, they, they have uh, expectations and dreams, uh, but then there's a society that is around them, and there's the, pr- uh, the pressures that that society can levy. Young people, likely, you will find yourself in a place at some point where you're a, a fr- a, in frustration, a frustration in your spirit as to yourself, You'll wonder about your place in the world. Do you have a place in the world? What is your place in the world? You'll want to be serving or fulfilling a purpose, but not knowing what that purpose is, and that can bring frustration. You're becoming who you are going to be as a person, and you're frustrated that you're not where you want to be just yet. You don't know who you are. You you don't know exactly what you want to become. You'll want to charge ahead of your current state. You're dissatisfied with who you are, where you are, what you are with how you look, with what you can or can't do, with what you do or do not have, with uh, what you want to be but what you aren't. And, and particularly young people often go through a time of disillusionment. We all face these times in our lives and it is in that day that Hagar becomes a great reminder to us of the character of our God. There is an anchor for us in this world in those times where we are drifting. There's an anchor for us in those times where we can become disillusioned with the the, the temporary nature of the things of life, where we can become disillusioned as we compare ourselves unwisely to others and see what we are in comparison to others or what we are in comparison to what we would want to be but aren't. And 
the frustrations and, 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 and such of, of this life. And there's an anchor for us in this. And that anchor is the one who does not change. All things change. God does not change. And no matter how I perceive myself or no matter how the people around me perceive me, what matters is how God perceives me. And so in a very real way, God becomes our anchor. And Hagar helps us see this, that for every man, woman, and child in this room, the God of the Bible is a God who sees you. And let's think about what this means for us this morning. I want to go through three points. We're just going to layer a foundation and then build upon it in these three points this morning. Point number one, the creator God is God, whether you receive him or not. We're just going to start at the very foundation, the baseline of truth. There's a God in heaven who created all things. And if he created all things, then he created you. And it stands to reckon that if God created all things and God created you, then God is in authority over all things, that God stands above all things, that he stands in authority over all things, and he stands in authority over you. Whether you like it or not, whether you receive him or not, the creator God is, in fact, God. God's existence, God's power, and God's authority are not conditioned upon your willingness to regard him in any way, shape, or form. God created the world with the word of his power. God sustains the world in his wisdom and in his strength. God designed the world to operate in consistency with his character and nothing that you do or I do or you think or I think is going to change any of that. So whether you receive him or not, you're playing in his playground and you play by his rules. And yes, you have been given by this almighty God a free will. And this free will by which you can choose to exercise your agency either for or against him has been given according to God's design and God's decree. But the Bible tells us that there is coming a day when you and I will stand before this almighty God in judgment. And on that day, whether you believed in him or not, whether you received him or not, you will stand before him and you will answer for your choices and those choices will echo into eternity. So that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And if this were all that the Bible said, that there's a God in heaven unto whom we're accountable, and that we will all stand before the judgment seat of a Christ to give an account for the things that we've done, well, that would be reasonable and that would be just. But it would also be terrifying for us. Because... Not one man in the history of history, with the exception of the great savior of man, Jesus Christ, has ever been capable of meeting God's righteous standard of good. Isaiah 64, 6, telling us that we are all as an unclean thing and all our, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We talked about this quite a bit last week. That every man's best attempt at moral uprightness according to God's design falls desperately short of God's holiness and are as filthy rags in his sight. But God be praised that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, sent forth his son, born of a virgin, God in flesh, walking among men, and he bore our sin in his body on the cross. 
He lived a perfect life, never once having sinned, never once having fallen short of the glory of God, never once having stepped into unrighteousness, but then willingly died a sinner's death, taking upon himself our sin and our shame, being punished by the Father for your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness. And because Jesus Christ has paid the price for my sin, I can thus be forgiven. The word we used last week is justified, being declared righteous on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. Not innocent, but declared not guilty. But Christ didn't stay dead, right? The Bible says that three days later, he arose from the dead, proving God's acceptance of his sacrifice and proving that God is not, is not only willing to forgive my sin, but also to give me eternal life. With the scriptures assuring us that if we will accept what Christ has done for us, setting aside anything and everything that I might be trusting in, to earn my way, to work my way, or otherwise become worthy of God's forgiveness and of heaven in myself, and rather trusting in what Jesus Christ alone has done through his death and through his resurrection, that I will be forgiven, I will be given eternal life. The word that we find in the scriptures is I will be saved from my sin. And of course, if you have never done this thing, if you have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, if you have never accepted that gift that Jesus Christ purchased for you on the cross of Calvary, would you make today the day that you do that? Because this creator God is in fact God, whether you receive him or not. And you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, whether you believe it or not. And on that day of judgment, it will look very different for those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. For those who are in Christ, that day of judgment will look very different because Jesus has borne that wrath and I have accepted that sacrifice. For those who have placed themselves under the blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there is therefore no, now no condemnation. Sin does not have dominion over us for we live under the dominion of grace and that's what we talked about last week. Now I say all of this to set this baseline. My message is not directly to the unbeliever today. We're in a church. Churches are for believers, not unbelievers. So I'm preaching as I do every week to believers. This is the audience that, that, that comes, and this is what we're doing this morning. We're, we're learning how to live this book. So I'm preaching to Christians today. Christian, you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Last week, we talked about what that means. The idea, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? From Romans chapter 6. You have received the creator God to be your God. But that doesn't mean you won't also come to points where you face a disillusionment with the times, with the seasons, with yourself, with your place in life, with where you are or what you are doing, with circumstances, with relationships, with yourself in many cases. But this baseline is very important. The baseline that God is God, that he stands above heaven and earth, that he sees all, that he knows all, that he is over all is very important for us to remember in that day. And it is just as important to understand that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Every one of you, whether you believe it or not, whether you receive it or not. And the reason why this is so important because it sets that foundation for what comes next. Point number two, God sees you even if you don't see him. Solomon in his day looked around at everything that existed under the sun. 
of his accomplishments, of his wisdom, of his capacities, of his greatness, of his capabilities to achieve. And in that day, he called it vanity and vexation of spirit. But there were things that Solomon found that were not vanity that we see as we continue through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 2.24, he said, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. So though he had all of this labor and all of these things, and he found vanity and vexation of spirit in their results, and he found vanity and vexation of spirit in the fact that he's going to hand it over to some buffoon when he dies, and he found vanity and vexation of spirit in the fact that he was going to die just like the fool would die without anything, and he found vanity and vexation of spirit in the nature of how things did not last and how they would not last, He said, there is something here that has value. It is not vanity, Solomon said, to identify the things that I have, whether great or small, the provisions I have, the the, the person that I am, the way that I look, whatever it might be, the talents and abilities that I have been given. It is not vanity to identify those things as from the hand of God, as gifts, no matter how small or how great, that exist that my soul may enjoy the good that I have in this life. Eat, drink, live out of the good of your labor. Solomon said, this I found to be from the hand of God. This I found to bring some measure of satisfaction. When I acknowledged that these things that I have by which I live, that I eat, that I drink, that I live, that I labor, that I eat of the fruit of my labor, that I live of the fruit of my labor, this is a gift from God. They exist as gifts from God that I may see Him giving to me and my soul might be satisfied. He said in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity. For that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. So he calls them the days of vanity, but he says there's a consolation in it. In this case, he speaks of his wife. We broaden that and we can say to relationships. There's a consolation. God has given us relationships as a consolation in this life, hasn't he? Husbands, wives, sisters, brothers, friends, companions. So that throughout the days of what Solomon calls our vanity, throughout the days where we're doing all of these things that are not gonna last, all of these things for which we will be forgotten, all of these things that are not gonna last even in ourselves. Young lady, you're, you're, you're beautiful, that's wonderful. But what does Proverbs 31 say? Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. Why? Because it's gonna pass. But a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Young man, you're strong, you're vital, you're healthy, you're capable, wonderful. There's still going to come a day where you're going to slow down, where that strength is going to wane. But there are some consolations within this life. There are the things that we see from the hand of God that he gives us for satisfaction, that we may eat and drink and live of the good of our own labor that we may have relationships with people in this life whereby we can go through the vanity of life together with those we love. And God has designed this as a consolation for us. 
our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, our friends, our church. But far more than that, when our Savior came, He not only personalized our redemption, so that as I walk through the gospel this morning, that gospel is very personal to the majority of us here today. We have received it. We have have personalized it through the finished work of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit that indwells us. But he also personalized our understanding of our standing before God. It's a well-known passage in Luke. Jesus is speaking and he says in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 12, Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus did not just personalize our redemption. He personalized the nature of our relationship with God. God cares for the sparrows. Five sparrows are sold for a farthing. In other words, sparrows are not regarded as much before man, right? There are a lot of things in this life that man does not give much thought to. And yet not one of them is forgotten before God. And then Jesus says, fear not. You are of far more value than many sparrows. God sees you, Christian. God sees who you are. God sees where you are. God knows you. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Not a single sparrow sold for a pittance goes beneath God's notice, and you have not gone beneath his notice either. You might be feeling like God has not noticed you, that God has forgotten about you, maybe even that God has abandoned you. These are lies. This is not true. God sees you. Now, that all things are before the Lord, that things do not go beyond his notice. This does not mean that God ordains everything that happens. Sin and suffering, death and pain, God sees, God knows, but it is not God who has ordained these things. We ordained these things through our rebellion. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that by man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. It was sin that it was man that brought sin into the world. And we've talked about why it is that God has chosen to allow sin. God has not chosen to allow sin in the world because he is uh, an angry God or a sadistic God or, or, or he, he approves of it or desires it or wants it. But the simple fact of the matter is if God was going to remove sin and suffering from this world, he would have to remove all sinful things from this world. And if he was going to remove the sinful things from this world, he'd have to remove you and I from this world. And if he was going to have to remove you and I from this world, then he would have to do so before we could exercise ourselves unto him, wherefore we'd all end up in a sinner's hell. So the reason why God allows sin to continue is so that we can continue. And the reason why he allows us to continue is because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why is it that we're praying for little Natalie's surgery coming up and we say, why is it that such a little girl is going to have to go through such hard times? Well, because there's sin in this world. Well, why would God allow sin in this world? So that you could be saved. It's a mercy. Yes, and he has to endure with grief as we have to. The sin and the sorrowing and the sadness of of, of all of the things that come with sin. Yes, we must endure that. Yes, he must endure that with grief, but far better than the alternative of condemning all men to hell because we are sinners. And so it is God's long suffering. It is God's mercy, 
whereby he suffers sin to continue for a season until his great work is complete. So God does not ordain sin and suffering, but God sees you in the midst of that sin and in the midst of that suffering, Christian. God knows, Christian. In good times and in bad, God sees, God knows. Down to the number of the hairs on your head, God knows. And on that day in Genesis 16, God knew Hagar. Hagar was no one. Hagar was nothing. Hagar would not have been written into history had she not, had, had, had the Bible not been told of her. Hagar was simply the handmaid of her master's mistress. Master's wife, her mistress. She was nobody, relatively speaking. But God saw her. God knew her. And then right at the end of Hagar's interaction, we find her say that, that, that last little phrase, which I did key in on in a different sermon. Verse, 16, uh, verse 13 of chapter 16. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. So she called him, Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Hagar says, God acknowledges that God has seen her. And then she says, and have I now seen God? And this is a concept of true importance. Not only that I may have confidence that God sees me, but that I might see God. Not only do you serve a God who knows you, but you serve a God whom you can know. And this is amazing, isn't it? That the God of all flesh, the creator of all things, would not only condescend to us to know us, but then would allow us to know him, to allow us to understand him. And that's our final point this morning. First, the creator God is God, whether you receive him or not, exhort you to receive him. God sees you even if you don't see him, even if you can't see what, what's going on, even if you don't understand, even if you're in that place of disillusionment and, 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 and you're not sure what's going on and you're disillusioned with yourself or your circumstances, you're disillusioned with your relationships, you're disillusioned with, with, with where you find yourself in life uh, and you say, God must have abandoned me, he didn't. God must not understand, he does. God must not see, he does. But beyond that, Christian, you will only find contentment with where you are. You will only be brought out of this disillusionment as you acknowledging God to be who he is and then coming to the place where you understand that God sees and knows you will then turn around and you will seek to know him back and allow him to be for you the true satisfaction because you will never find satisfaction in this life in the things of this life. As Solomon had said before, the only satisfaction is the things of this life in God. The things of this life through God. The things of this life as an extension of you knowing the God who knows you. There's nothing greater in life than that we may truly know our creator. It is a wonderful and a comforting thing to know that my creator knows me, how much more when I can know my creator. And this is kind of the final piece of the puzzle. And this is where we're going to start putting it together with particularly the circumstances you might find yourself in today. You perhaps have noticed that as I've tried to relate to you 
what we have all experienced, the kind of the, 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 the natural human experience, the disillusionment of living life under the sun that even in good times as Solomon experienced, life can lend itself to confusion and alienation and emptiness and frustration that even in these good times, the, 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 the good things that Solomon experienced as he became disillusioned with them, it led him to a place of frustration and even of sorrow. And this is a common theme of disillusionment, is it's either, either drawn from sorrow or it leads to sorrow. It either, it's either drawn from suffering or it leads to suffering. And in a way, this is also by design, because humanity is designed by God to experience confusion, alienation, emptiness, and frustration when he's not in the right place with God, when he's not at peace with God. Even suffering can serve unto that end that we might be drawn into a reliance of the God who sees me. And it is when we are not in that place of reliance, we are not in that place where we are at peace with God that we experience these feelings and sometimes it's because we're not doing right. Other times it's simply because we aren't rightly oriented to who we are and who God is and who we are in light of who God is. So that as I'm struggling with who I am as a person, what I'm actually struggling with is me comparing myself to others or comparing myself to my own expectations. And I'm not seeing myself as God would see me, but as I would see myself. Notice how men have expressed these things throughout the Bible. We spoke of Solomon and Ecclesiastes expressing uh, um, in God's gifts the consolation of a life of vanity. Recall then how he ends this, this book of wisdom in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Solomon says the whole duty of man is actually to arrange himself under God. That as we live this life of vanity, we have these consolations. It is intended as I go through the suffering, as I go through the disillusionment, as I go through the frustration, as I go through the sorrow, as I go through the confusion, the whole, the whole point of it is to draw me into alignment with who God is. To fear God and to keep his commandments. And as I align myself with God, I see the God who sees me. And it is in this state that God can then relate himself to me rightly, and I can relate myself to him rightly. And I can relate myself to my circumstances rightly. And I can understand my place in this world. Consider Paul's expressions of this thought in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul said a similar thing to Solomon that in counting all things in this earth but loss, in recognizing it all to be vanity and vexation of spirit, he then directs his heart and his mind unto God, unto God's design, unto God's purposes for him. And as he aligns himself with God's priorities, even as it might lead to loss, Paul says in doing so, 
it, it, it led in his life to loss. Now, in Solomon's life, it didn't lead to loss. He had all the money. He had all the things. Uh, he just recognized them all as vanity. In Paul's life, he says, I set all of those things down, and I, I counted them but loss that I might do the thing that God has called me to do. God called Solomon to be king. God called Paul to suffer for his sake. And so he set those things down and it led to loss and it led to suffering and it led to difficulty. Yet as he did so, as it, di as it led to these things, he stepped into them with the hope that in doing so, he might know God. He might know the God who knew him. And so he would go on to say, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. It's a different passage, 2 Corinthians 12, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, I'll take pleasure in these things if I may know Christ. That I may know the one who knows me. That he might taste of the power of the resurrection. That he might taste of the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. James wrote a similar thing. James chapter four, verses eight through 10. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. To see God, for God to draw nigh to me, I draw nigh to him. What does this look like? Well, I align with him. Paul aligned with him. He counted all things but dung. Solomon aligned with him. He said, the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Peter says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, be afflicted, mourn, or James, excuse me. This speaking not of, not, not of never having joy in life, this speaks of living in this place of being poor in spirit, spirit of repentance into our lives, humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord and allowing him then to exalt us. And in doing so, you will see the God who sees you. One more example, and this is kind of my favorite. This is the one that, that was bouncing around in my mind that compelled this, this message where I couldn't let Hagar go. And that's back into the Old Testament, the book of Job. Job's a heavy book. Job lost everything he had as God sovereignly allowed Satan to test Job's love and loyalty to him. Job lost his fortune, he lost his family, he lost his health. Job then had to sit there as his friends all gathered around him, telling him how bad of a person he was, demanding that he repent of sins that he had not committed, but which they were convinced he had because it was the natural analog to his sufferings. Job strongly contends for his own righteousness, and as the narrative plays out, he more or less demands that God appear and advocate for him. Uh, this does not end well for Job. Uh, the, the book ends well for Job, but he has to go through something first. Beginning in chapter 38, God does appear and God begins to speak. And God asks Job a series of questions. Many of them beginning with, where were you when? Where were you when I framed the worlds? Where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I named those stars? Where were you? Are you able to hold back the seas? Are you able to Direct Leviathan. We talked about that not too long ago as well. Now, the Lord does affirm that Job's suffering had nothing to do with his sin, but he confronts Job on why he thought he had any right to question God or the circumstances within which God allowed him to live in his life. 
And after the beautiful words of God's power and majesty and love and justice, Job then responds this way in Job 42, verses one through six. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. I opened my mouth without understanding and I said things I shouldn't have said. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee and I will speak. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. See that in verse five? Very similar to what James said, the idea of uh, let our laughter be turned to mourning. But Job said this, he said, before I had heard of you with my ears, I knew who you were with my ears, but now I've seen you. Now we could say this was the angel of the Lord coming down and standing before him in a similar way that we could say that of Hagar. But what were they both actually saying on that day? They weren't saying, my eyes have physically seen you. That's kind of metaphorical for what they were actually saying. What they were saying is, in my time of suffering, you came and you showed me that you saw me. And in my alignment with you, now I can see you. Now I can know you. Job says, when my eyes see you, I can do nothing but align with you, humble myself and repent in dust and ashes. Christian, it's a wonderful thing to know the God that sees you to know the God that knows you. As insignificant or significant as you think you may be or that you are in this world, you matter to the God of creation, but desire all the more, Christian, that you might see the God who sees you. And how does this come about? Well, in each man we consider today, there was a common thread, wasn't there? And the common thread that went through each man and woman, including Hagar, that we saw today as it related to this idea of seeing the God who sees you, the common thread was some measure of loss or suffering, huh? Solomon, through the vanity of existence, it brought him to a place of personal anguish, disillusionment with his own state, not because he was in a place of personal suffering, but because he recognized the futility of all of his excess and of all of his success. Paul was asked to count all things but loss for Christ. And of course, we know the, the testimony of Paul's life being one of suffering. James calls men to be humble, to be afflicted and mourn, that they might be lifted up in the sight of the Lord. Spiritual affliction, if nothing else, that condition of personal humility. Job loses all that he has, goes through this period of, of, of accusation only then to be corrected by the Lord and he repents in dust and ashes. Hagar, going through a time of suffering before her mistress, fleeing from her mistress, called to return, humbles herself before the Lord and sees him in that place of suffering and humility. If you're going to see the God that sees you, there's probably going to be with it some trials, some difficulties. It's probably going to have to come through some rocky roads. Maybe those will be physical. 
Maybe it's health. Maybe it's injury. Maybe it's, it's, it's illness. Maybe it will be emotional. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's, it's um, uh, sorrow of loss. Maybe it will be spiritual. Going through the temptations and the trials, the testings by which we are refined. The purging that Jesus talked about in John 15, that we may bring forth more fruit. The suffering, which every man that goes through, it's never joyous but grievous, but it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. What does it mean? It means we are drawn closer to the Lord. Why is it that we pray when we talk about people who are sick and people who are hurting? We ask that the Lord would use these things to bring them to a better understanding of who they are because this is oftentimes where our understanding of God is refined. We open the word of God to know who God is. Job says, my ear heard. But then at the end of his suffering, he says, but now my eyes have seen. And Christian, when I exhort you today to desire that you might see the God who sees you, I am exhorting you to something that is not going to come without its measure of difficulty. Because the way that God often must teach us is through contrast. That we know joy through sorrow. That we know success through failure. That we know exaltation through humility. So it seems as though knowing the Lord often passes through pain of some sort. Often passes through, and it certainly passes through humility. But as we see in Hagar's day, and as we saw in Job's day, and as we saw in Solomon's day, and as we considered the testimony of Paul and the exhortations of James, and certainly we could go to many others, if you will walk that path, acknowledging the Creator God who is God, Understanding in full that that God is a God who sees you, who loves you, who has regarded you, that, that, that he has not abandoned you, that he has not uh, uh, stepped back from you, that if there's distance between you and him, you know who moves and it wasn't him. And if you will regard that God and you will understand how much he knows you and how he regards you, that you are of more value than those many sparrows, that even the hairs of your head are numbered. Well, then the next step is to seek to know him. So we dig into his word and we spend time in prayer. And by those things, we will hear him. But then also pray that you might see him. And that will not be the easiest prayer to pray. And it will come with some difficult results if the testimony of the word of God is, is, bears out in the same way in your life as it seems to bear out in all of these others. But it will come with the great blessings Blessings that we ought to desire. The relationship with God that we are designed to have. And as we fall into the relationship with God that we are designed to have, even through the suffering, even through the pain, even through the difficulties, it will bear out the one thing that only a relationship with God can bear out, and that will be the fruit of the Spirit. The joy and contentment of knowing your Lord in the midst of the circumstances of life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. 
More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.